following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 1, that's page number 836, if you're using the Bible in front of you. Give you just a moment to get there, and then we will begin. If you're there, look at verse 21 with me, and we'll read this together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Mark writes this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Lord, even in that last song, I'm reminded that the power that all of us in this room so desperately need for life is not found in anything, anything except the cross. It's not in my words this morning. It's not in our ability to understand them. The power we need is supernatural. It's something that you and you alone give because you and you alone are the one who possess this power. And so as we come to you today, as we come to your word and we try to understand it, I just pray, Lord, I I, I plead with you, I, I beg you that your spirit will open our minds because, Lord, they are closed, they are dull, they are cold that you will open our hearts because they too, Lord, are cold and we need your word to penetrate deeply. We need to see you, Jesus. We need to, to fall in love with you again. We need, to, we need to understand who you are and that's why we're here. And so that's nothing that I can do with some words put together in a sermon. That's something only the Spirit can do through your word. And so today as we open it, please do that work. And Lord, for all of us in here today, I I ask that you will give us hearts that are receptive, soften us, and prepare us for the time ahead. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. I've been uh, doing a lot of reflecting over the past few weeks, I guess. I don't know why, a number of reasons, but uh, just kind of thinking back over the past year, a few years. And I was thinking about 
this place that we're in and the building and kind of remembering back just even like a couple of years ago when we didn't have a building and we didn't have uh, even any plans of a building or any hope of a building or anything else for that matter. And so we would just sit around and talk about sometimes what we would want if the Lord would work it out, kind of what kind of things would we want to have or not have or how would we want it to be or not be. And one of the things I think that we all agreed on in these conversations that we never wanted was a church sign out front with one of those uh, sections from movable typeface. You know what I'm talking about? Like where you go to McDonald's and they've got that and it says like Egg McMuffin, two for three dollars, that kind of thing. We, we never wanted that. And I think that was because that in our opinion, for churches who have that, and this is a granted a caricature in the generalization, but stick with me for a minute. Churches that have that, they go one of two ways. Either they go the super boring way where it simply says like Sunday services, 10 a.m. And like, that's it. And you can get that on a thing called the internet. And so you don't need a sign anymore to, to communicate those kinds of things. Or they could go the route that my church, the, the church I attended growing up went, and that was to use it for the cheesy slogan or message, you know, where seven days without prayer makes one week, W-E-A-K, get it? That's great, isn't it? That's wonderful. I love that. Every time I see it. Um, they typically go one of those two ways, cheesy or, or just purely informational. But there's, a, there's one church here in our area that has done, and, and I'm not making fun, I am. I'm not making fun. Um, it just interests me, and I, I'm easily entertained by many things. But there's a church in our area that has one of those types of signs. And they use their sign a little different than either of those two ways. They use their sign each week to advertise the title of the following Sunday sermon which impresses me that whoever's doing this knows far enough in advance the titles that they're going to have coming up. But over the last six years, because it's been there for six years, I have enjoyed a number of them, and I have some of them here for you, okay? Uh, I'm just going to read them relatively quickly, I think. Sunburn, but S-O-N, I don't know what in the world that was about. Live by the drop. Papa, can you hear me? The strong, silent type. I want my mama. All you need is love. They like a lot of song titles. All you need is love. Forgiveness, Foolishness, and Frogs, My Buddy and Me, which is a personal favorite of mine, because if you're in your 30s, you probably remember that toy, don't you? My buddy, my buddy. Okay, you're going to sing that the rest of the day, and you're going to hate me now. You're welcome. My Buddy and Me, um, Butterfly Kingdom, I Can See Clearly Now, Mirror, Mirror, My Precious, Lord of the Rings reference, I assume, uh, an E.T. Deity, Love Me, That Feel-Good Religion, Holy Hide-and-Seek. This one, the guy had to have been on drugs. You're harshing my mellow. Man, you're harshing my mellow. I like that one. What's love got to do with it? Jesus and Jaguars, because they're Jacksonville fans. Dove, Dove, Goose. The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. And one of my favorite ones of all time, Jesus' Bucket List. Okay, I don't know what Jesus didn't get done on his bucket list, but we would have found out if we'd have been there that day. And, and every time I see these sermon titles up there, there's a part of me that's in, well, not part of me, all of me is asking, why? Like, why would you put a title to a sermon on a sign like that? I assume that the logic is, is that they're hoping people will drive by and be like, the gospel according to Johnny Cash? I love Johnny Cash. We should go. Or what's love got to do with it? Tina Turner is my favorite. We should go. And they're hoping people will see the title and they're, by be enticed to walk in the door and sit and listen to a sermon. And since they've been doing it for six years, I have to assume it works. Because why would you keep doing that for six years if it didn't? Well, 
the title thing is what I was focused on because I, I'm kind of sensitive to this issue overall about sermon titles. I remember when I first started six years ago preaching regularly, I actually gave a portion of my week to trying to come up with a, a memorable and cool title for my sermons, even though I never told anybody what it was. Like, I never got up here and said, today's sermon is such and such, you know, gospel according to Johnny Cash. And you're all like, oh, I never told anyone what it was. But I actually tried to work on this thing. And over time, I began to realize that I was really bad at coming up with creative titles. And so I just gave up. And I ended up just using a, (laughs) coming up with a different system to title all of my messages. My system is very dorky, but it works for me. It, it, It it starts like this. I'll use Genesis. Genesis 1.1. If I'm preaching from Genesis 1.1, it's 1.1 space dash space. They have to be perfect. Space dash space creation. Part one. That's how it always goes for me. I, I try to title my sermon with the passage I'm actually preaching from in that message. And then some word or phrase, no more than two or three words that will give me some clue as to what that general section was about. Um, And I tell you that today because over the last few weeks, Jordan has taken it upon himself to start printing my sermon titles in our bulletin. Um, But, but, hold on, so you're all pulling them out now. You're like, what was this week? Oh, wow. Um, He often changes them for me without any ever asking me if he can. He, He... he comes up with better ones. Like a few weeks ago, I was preaching from Mark 1, 16 to 20, and I titled that sermon, Mark 1, dot 16 to 20, space dash space, Jesus and his disciples, part one. Okay, that was my, my title. He used the title, A Call to Follow Jesus. And I was like, wow, that's really good. He's creative. So I was happy with that. But, but for last week and this week, he has actually kind of changed his pattern, and he actually use my real title. You'll see here in your bulletin that the title of today's sermon is Jesus's First Day. And does anyone now, knowing my system, want to go out on a limb and try to guess why I decided to name it Jesus's First Day? Hey, look at you. You were listening. Very good. You get an A today. Yeah. What Mark is recording for us here in verses 21 to 34 is the first full day, as we would think about it, morning to evening, first full day of Jesus's public ministry here in the story. And it's important to note now, and I'll, I'll say this again in a moment, but it's important to note now that it may not be Jesus's real first day. I mean, there may have been days prior to this, but it is the first day that Mark is telling us about. The section begins here in verse 21, if you look at your Bibles, with Jesus going to the synagogue for their worship service, most likely on a Saturday morning. It could have been a Saturday afternoon, but I think it's probably a Saturday morning. And he's going to teach that morning. And at some point in the service, a demon-possessed guy is going to interrupt stuff, and and Jesus will, will cast out the demon. And when the service ends, verse 29, he's going to leave the synagogue and just walk right down the street. You saw the pictures last week. Walk right down the street to Peter's house, where they're going to find Peter's mother in law sick in bed. She's got a fever, Mark tells us. We don't know exactly what that means, but at least she has a fever, but she's sick and unable to, to get up. And so Jesus comes in and he heals her and she gets up and she serves them. So you get the idea that there's some kind of a family time or a group time with them together. And however long that lasts, we don't know. But, it, but at sunset, at some point here, at sunset, Mark tells us that the whole city 
which is a bit of hyperbole. I, I don't think he means that the whole city came. It's kind of like when you go to Walmart and you're like, all of Virginia Beach was there. You don't mean that. You just mean there's a lot of people there. So he's, he's saying the whole city comes at sunset because they want Jesus to heal them and cast out demons for them as well. In class, if you were here last week, you can answer this question. Why did they come at sunset? The Sabbath had just ended. Right, very good. And so they couldn't come prior to sunset, but sunset has, has come now so they can all show up and they come and Jesus heals them and finally they all go home. Jesus goes to bed and, and he gets up early the next morning, verse 35. You can see that the next day, early Sunday morning, which is not uh, nothing at that point. It's just the first day of the week. It's Sunday morning. Jesus gets up early while it's still dark and he goes out to a quiet, desolate place to pray. And then the story goes on from there. So what, you, what you're seeing here in these verses is Mark's attempt to show us a day in the life of Jesus. And since it's the very first day that Mark is showing us, I therefore title my sermon, Jesus' First Day. I will sign autographs at the end if you're interested, just for your your knowledge. Now, as I was thinking through this over the last couple weeks, I ask a lot of questions of the text when I'm studying. But there was one question more than any other that kept coming back to the front of my mind and saying, I think this is the most important question of all the ones that I was thinking through. And the question was this one. It was what I want to deal with today. Why did Mark choose this day to present present as Jesus' first day? As I already said a moment ago, there were very likely days before this one where Jesus is ministering and he's doing things. There are definitely days after this one. We're going to get to see the next day, what happens on Sunday here, and starting in verse 35. But, but Mark doesn't go back in time to start earlier, nor does he move ahead later to, to get some later day. He chooses, out of all of the places he could have begun his story, he chooses this particular day to present to us as being Jesus' first here in the story. And the question then is, Why? What's so special about this day above all the others? Well, what I think is going on here is I think that the answer has to be that there are something or some things going on on this particular day that show Jesus to us in a way that Mark really wants us to understand and and to get. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does this day, what, what do the events of this day show us about Jesus that are clear, that, that stand out, that we can, we can see, understand, and apply to our lives? And there are going to be a couple of things we'll see over this week and next. But the one I want to show you this morning is Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. And to, and to start looking at this, I just want to walk through in some detail verses 21 to 28 together so that you can understand what Mark is doing here in these events. Okay, I want to make sure they're very, very clear in your mind. So if you will, look at verse 21. And notice that Mark sets the stage for us very, very clearly. It's a Saturday morning. It's the Sabbath day. He's there in Capernaum, and he's going to the synagogue. And I will say that if you were not here last Sunday and you don't understand the significance of Capernaum, or the Sabbath day, or the synagogue. At some point, Jordan will have those sermons back online. I know many of you have asked for them, and I'm sorry. He'll get to them as soon as we pay him, and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll get those on soon. He's not here, so he's fair game today. Um, 
As soon as they're there, you need to go back and listen to that because I will not take the time each time we come up to some of these words after I've explained them to re-explain them all over again, and I want you to understand them. But here he is, Sabbath day, Saturday morning at the synagogue, and you can tell from the story that either these people here in the synagogue are familiar with Jesus by, by seeing him around town a lot, maybe he's been there a lot, or they're familiar with him by reputation. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because they ask him to teach. Because if you're in a synagogue, you, you're not just going to walk in as a stranger and like, hey, stranger, will you teach us God's word today? Either you're on the schedule that the ruler has put together to be teaching, reading, and teaching that day, or you're someone who is known to them, who, who they might say, well, you're here, what a, what a privilege, what an opportunity, will you please teach us? So one way or the other, they know Jesus, either by him being there often or by his reputation, and so they ask him to teach. But I want you to notice something really, really, really strange here at this particular point in the story that stands out like a sore thumb. If you were Mark, and if your purpose in writing is to show people who Jesus is, and if in the course of doing that you wanted to emphasize his authority in teaching specifically, wouldn't you include the content of his teaching? Wouldn't you maybe, you know, write out what it was he talked about? Or, or maybe at least the, the, the good parts, right? All the jokes. At least give all the jokes so we know what Jesus is saying. Or maybe the sermon title, at least the subject. Jesus was in the synagogue and he was teaching on, on God's holiness. Jesus was in the synagogue and he was teaching on man's sinfulness, something. Wouldn't you in some way, shape, or form include the content of his teaching? I would. And yet, when you look here at what Mark tells us, he doesn't do any of that. No content, not even a clue as to what it is that Jesus is talking about. He simply tells us what Jesus was doing. He was teaching without giving us any idea of what he's teaching about. But whatever it is that he's teaching about is clearly powerful to the people who are listening there. In verse 22, you see the response of the people sitting around the wall there in the synagogue. They are, what was the word? They are astonished at his teaching. Why are they astonished at his teaching? Because he taught them as one who had authority. And if you're a note taker, if you like to underline in your Bible, that's the word to underline right here. He teaches as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It's the only person they have to compare or group they have to compare him to. He doesn't teach like them. And, and, and just note this word authority for the moment and let's keep going, okay? So he teaches as one with authority, not as the scribes. Immediately after this, verse 23, there's some man in the synagogue who has an unclean spirit. He's a demon possessed. And he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And again, pause and note, (laughs) irony of ironies, that at this moment in the story, the demon-possessed guy is the only person in the room who actually knows who Jesus is. Everyone else sitting around the room sees him as just the guy, Jesus of Nazareth. 
But the demon-possessed guy, who's in the worship service, funny enough, the demon-possessed guy sees Jesus and appreciates who he really is. And the confession that he makes here in this verse would have sounded amazing coming out of anyone else's mouth. I mean, if Peter had said, I know who you are, Jesus, you're the Holy One of God, Jesus would have been like, you have great faith. But it's not Jesus, or excuse me, it's not Peter who says this, it's it's the demon. The demon knows him immediately, and that's because he's standing face to face with his creator. And we'll talk more about demons later, maybe next week, I'm not sure, maybe the week after. But, but the demon recognizes Jesus' true identity, and he's clearly, clearly afraid of Jesus' power. He's worried, have you come to destroy us? But you see here, Jesus hasn't come to destroy him. But nor has he come to just let him stay in this man, to leave this man in this state. And so in verse 25, then Jesus rebukes the demon, be silent and come out of him. And, and not to overemphasize the simple, but what happens when he says, be silent, and come out of him? He, he comes out, okay? Real complicated. He comes out. He convulses the man, he cries out, and he comes out. In other words, the demon immediately and instantly obeys what Jesus says. And in verse 27, Mark again shows us the response of the people. This, you notice a pattern here? He shows us the response of the people. and They're what? Amazed. In verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. Now in verse 27, they are amazed and they began to ask among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Same word as verse 22. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And then Mark ends this little section of the synagogue visit with with uh, an interesting little statement that at once, at once, like instantly like Twitter, gone, at once, at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the, all, all the surrounding region of Galilee. And what you need to understand by that is once they dismiss, everyone's going home like, can you believe what we just saw? Hey, buddy, you weren't there today. You should have been at synagogue today. You missed it. There was a guy there. He taught with authority, and a man with an unclean spirit showed up, and, and he just said, get out, and the, the demon left. And, and, and this word spreads all around the surrounding area of Capernaum there in, in, in northern Galilee to Chorazin, Bethsaida, that that region up there on the north side of the sea. As you think about the, the, the picture that Mark has presented to us here, it becomes clear, I think, very, very quickly that he wants us to see two specific things because he repeats each of these two things twice. Number one, he wants us to see Jesus's authority. And number two, He wants us to see how other people respond to that authority because he does this thing two times. And so let's just quickly consider these things and then try to draw some conclusions from it that I hope will be helpful and convicting. In relation to Jesus's authority, you need to understand the word that Mark keeps using for authority here is the Greek word exousia. And that doesn't really matter so much. But what does matter is that it is a very, very, very strong word for authority, for power, for might, dominion, lordship, rule. It's a word that indicates that someone is really, genuinely in charge. And while it can be used of people, 
there's always going to be somebody of power, a king, a judge, a, a general over an army. While it can be used to people, it's not normally used to people. It's normally going to be used of, of deities or spiritual beings. That's how strong this word is. And this is the word that as the people are listening to Jesus, as they are watching him interact with this demon-possessed guy, and they see what happens, they say, he's got exousia, he's got authority. And just think about the authority he shows. Think about his authority in teaching. Mark is emphasizing here the power of Jesus' teaching, not its content. He, he just wants you to see that in this particular instance, Jesus can be known by what he does, not just what he says. That you could simply look at Jesus as he stands there in front of the room and as he presents truth and recognize that this guy isn't like any other guy you know. He's an authoritative teacher, and then he moves on. And and based on how the people respond, it's, it's clear that you can see that Jesus here is speaking for God, not about God. They can only compare Jesus to the other, only other teachers they know, and that's the scribes. That's what they said. He teaches us with authority, not as the scribes. And when you think about what the scribes do, remember what I told you last week, that they are the preeminent teachers of their day. No one's going to be a better teacher of God's word than a scribe. They spoke about God. They taught people about God. They do what I do. They stand in the same place I stand proclaiming God's word to other people. But recognize that for both myself and for the scribes, we as a group, and I'm lumping myself with them, we have no authority. I'm nothing. I'm a man, a sinful man. I, I, you have no reason to listen to me. Why you come each week? I don't even know. But here you are. Thank you for coming. All right. I, I have nothing, no authority. Any authority I have is derivative authority. It comes from the authority of God's word. And as I accurately proclaim that authority, then you have a responsibility to listen and obey. But I, in and of myself, have nothing. I talk about God. I speak about God. Jesus came speaking for him because he is God. His words had power. It was as if God himself had descended to earth in the form of a man. They're so close in their understanding. They recognize that something's different, and yet they don't get it. And you can see this power, the power of Jesus' words in a very specific example then when when the demon-possessed man confronts him. Who are you? Why have you come? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are. And note that when when Jesus responds to him, he doesn't, it's not a conversation. He doesn't like immediately begin doing some like ritual dance and and, like if I make this potion and throw on you, then you'll have to leave. Jesus' authority is such that all he says to him is be silent and get out. And instantly, instantly, without discussion, without debate, without appeal, the demon leaves He recognizes Jesus' authority unlike pretty much everybody else. And in a way, none of them do. And all he can do is to obey. And so in these verses then, Mark has highlighted Jesus' authority both in the temporal realm in his teaching and in the spiritual realm through this exorcism. Clearly, clearly, this man from Nazareth is more than just a man. 
So when, when I say to you that, that Mark wants us to see Jesus' authority, this is what I'm referring to. Now, I also said that he wants you to see the response of others in the story because he highlights that two different times. And so again, notice how these other people then respond to this authority. How, how did the people immediately respond in the situation? Well, they're astonished, verse 22. They're, they're amazed, verse 27. They don't look at Jesus' power at his teaching and say, well, there's probably some explanation. I, I've heard better. I <laughs> was a guy, you know, the last uh, Sabbath day, he was, he was as good as this. They, they don't in any way deny it or downplay it. They see it and are blown away by it, and they believe in his power. You say, how do you know they believe in his power? Well, it's because of verse 28. They leave there, and they, they spread his fame all over the region. You should have been there today. It was amazing. This guy's doing stuff. It was amazing. And, and at sunset, by the time we get into the next paragraph of the text, at sunset, they're going to put feet to their belief. All these people, not just the ones who are in the synagogue, but all of them, they're going to they're swarm Peter's house. They're going to be standing out in the streets, lined up, up because they want this man Jesus who has this authority to heal their sick relatives to cast out the demons that nobody else has had power over they want him to do things for him they believe in his power and so they come in droves they 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 believe they're amazed by his authority how, how do the demons respond well we already saw that they know him they confess a good confession and they obey they don't try to fight they there's no rebellion in this scene. The demons are cowering before him already and obeying his commands instantly. And so what that means then is that in these verses, Mark has established that Jesus is the authority from God recognized by everyone who sees him, both in the physical world and in the spiritual world. No one's deny it, denying it. Everyone's accepting it. Jesus is special. You always know that after statements like that, <laughs> there's a butt coming. I want to take you ahead in the story a bit and ask one more question. The people, I said, immediately respond with belief in his power, right? How do they ultimately respond? And so if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Hold your spot in Mark 1. And go to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to read what has to be one of the saddest statements of Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. One of. Because there's another one on my mind that we'll share at the end. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is, is talking about a number of things, but he begins to talk about his ministry, his public ministry, where he's been, what he's done. And in verse 20, he, he says this, what we're going to pick up. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are Gentile cities out on the coast, not Jewish cities, Gentile cities. If, if the mighty works done in you had been done in front of the Gentiles, they would have repeated long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, a city that for the Jews listening would have been like the epitome of evil. It would be like saying if it had been done for Hitler, okay, in our minds, it would be the epitome of evil. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you feel the weight of those words coming off of Jesus' lips? Can you imagine being someone who's a resident of Capernaum, who has seen the things that Jesus has done? You stood out in the street that night and you watched people bringing their sick and their demon-possessed to Peter's door and he heals them all and he casts out the demons. You heard his teaching. You saw his authority. And now he says to you, it'd be better for Sodom than for you. If the works I had done here had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. Note that word. And throughout this section here, Matthew 11, Jesus Jesus doesn't specifically chide Capernaum for its unbelief. He chides them for not repenting. Which, as we have learned already so far in Mark, is directly tied to belief. And so what that tells me then is that we are seeing here in in Mark 1 the beginning of something that will be true of mankind from that point forward. From, From the days where Jesus is walking around and he's talking to people all the way to our day that people can believe in the power of Jesus and be totally unchanged by his person. They can believe in his power. They can believe that he can do amazing things, that he is some authority that is so much greater than everything else. They can believe that with all their heart and even take actions to that end and yet be completely unchanged by who he is. Imagine if you asked anyone in Capernaum, who's Jesus? That guy who lives down the street with with Simon and his wife and, and, and her mother. Who, who is this guy? They'd be like, oh, he's amazing. He really is amazing. You should hear him teach. What a teacher. You should watch him, him heal people. I've never seen anything like it. If the man who's got a demon in him comes up, he can just cast him out. The demon doesn't even argue. He just leaves. I've never seen anything like it. Now, please excuse me while I get back to my life. That is, in effect, what is happening in Capernaum. These people get to see amazing things and yet are are unchanged. They believe in his power, but unchanged by his person. And and folks, this is what what scares me. It scares me as as a person, as an individual, because I see in this myself just 17 years ago. If, if, if I had been sitting in these seats when I was 16 years old or 17 years old or anything prior to 18, and, and someone had said to me, are you a believer in Jesus? I would have been like, yes, totally. And I would have given you every right answer. I knew them all. I believed I was a believer. I believed I was saved. I was blind. I was deluded. 
all of my faith was actually in me and what I had done and going forward on a Sunday and praying a prayer as if they were some magic incantation that guaranteed my, my place with Jesus in all eternity. My faith wasn't in Christ alone. My faith was in me. And here I am now at 18, and God is beginning to pull those blinders back from my eyes and showing me where my faith really was. And I go, I'm sitting there, and this is in no way hyperbole. I'm like, what was I doing all those other years? If you had asked me, I would have said yes, but by, by this point when the gospel had finally broken through, I knew, I knew that it had all been a lie. That should terrify us, that we can be that self-deluded to not even know the condition of our own heart. It scares me as a father to think that I can teach my children all the right things, right truth, right actions, all of these things. And yet at the end of the day, I, I, I can't change their heart. I can't. I can try to put truth in, in front of them, but, but I can't make them believe and I know one thing I don't want to do is I, I don't want to in any way as a, as a dad, I, I don't want to, to give my children false hope. I don't want to tell them things that aren't necessarily true in and of their heart. I want them to come to a place in their own heart where they see their brokenness before Jesus and cry out to him as their only hope. They need to accept the gospel personally. I can't make them do that. I wish I could. That powerlessness there, it, it almost feels crippling at times. It drives us to our knees as parents saying, God, do what we can't do. Do what we can't do. That scares me as a pastor. Because, and this is in no way aimed at anyone in this room, that there is no possible way that with as many people who are sitting in front of me right now, stand, or sitting in front of me, that every single person in this room is a believer. No possible way. I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I can't say for anybody. There's, there's, I, I would be very hard to convince that everyone in here definitely is a believer in Jesus. How many people have spent their lives enamored with Jesus' power, going on in, in quasi-religiousness, but never actually changed by his person? It amazes me here in the story. There's a demon-possessed guy in the synagogue. He's over there. He's sitting and he's listening. And he's probably there every week, I'm guessing. And he has no issue with being in the, in the service. Here he is, totally unfazed until Jesus comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches with power, all of a sudden the demon can't be quiet anymore. For the first time, he's confronted with truth and he reacts. But for all those other Sabbath days, there he sat, unaffected by what was being said. You say, are you trying to, like, make me doubt? You're being like a fear monger here? No, I promise you, I am not. If anything, what I want is for us to persevere and to be committed to truth and to, to know in our hearts beyond a shadow of a doubt, to have that assurance that the Scriptures talk about, that we are saved. I want that for every one of us in this room. But not to the expense of, of hiding truth from you either. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, I don't care if you said you are your whole life, you need to wake up. I can't wake you up. I'd love to be able to wake you up. I'd love to be able to just go over there and say, wake a shake and wake up. Look at your condition. But there's power 
It's just not here. The power is in the cross. The power is in the scriptures. The power is as the Spirit takes God's word and he pulls back those scales. He he uncovers those eyes so that you can see who you really are. And so I come to you today and I plead with you today, consider, think, examine, pray. Jesus, I I said that that Matthew 11 is one of the scariest passages in, in the Gospels that Jesus ever says. There's one that's scarier to me. It's in Matthew 7 when he says to me that, or he says that many, many will say to me on that day, many, notice that, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Folks, the gospel gives assurance. The cross gives us comfort. As we are confronted with these things, we We are forced to go back to our knees and examine our hearts and say, where is our faith? Is it is it in Christ alone? Can I can I sing with the old hymn just as I am without one plea, not one except that your blood was shed for me? If there's any other plea, anything else, then our faith is in vain. And so I come to you today as your pastor, as your friend, as a brother in Jesus, convicted myself by what I see Mark presenting here so clearly, Jesus' authority on display and people responding, but to no end, to nothing. And I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you, consider these things. Will you bow your head just for a moment? I'm going to close us here in just just a moment, but I want to give you a chance right now to just think about what we have seen this morning, to recognize the danger that is here in all of our hearts. This, for me, my house, every house represented in here today, us as a church family, we do not want to simply be a group of people gathered together around the power of Jesus as if he's some mascot, as I keep saying, that we all rally around. No, we, we want to gather around him as our Lord and Savior. And this matters a great deal. And so ask yourself, who is Jesus in your life? Where is your faith? Are there any other pleas? And if God in his great mercy shows you that there are other pleas, that your faith is not secure in Jesus, then do not rest until this is taken care of. I will help you. Others will be happy to help you. Do not let this pass. Father, I, my fear this morning is that I will create doubts that should not be there. That is not my purpose, and you know that, and I have to trust and hope that you in your goodness will do the things that I could never do to give assurance and and confidence in the gospel for those who truly believe. But Lord, you have made it clear to us, and we will see it made more and more clear as we work through Mark, that not everyone who sees you work and, and, and even believes in certain things you do is ultimately saved. 
these people in Capernaum, they saw you, they, they came to you for help, and you helped them, and yet they didn't believe. Terrifying words that it would be better for Sodom than for them. May that not be true of us. We have been given a great privilege to know your word and hear it preached, to, to read it, to sing these songs. These are all privileges that we have in Jesus. May it never be said that we were enamored with your power, but unchanged by your person. And so God, for each and every one of us today, as individuals, as mothers and fathers, as, as children in the room, as, as believers, as members, as visitors, as whatever, as just people. Lord, give us either that confidence in the gospel that only your spirit can give or trouble our hearts until we know the answer for sure. And if there's anyone in here today, Lord, who doesn't know you as their Savior, then I pray, God, that you will give them no rest, no rest whatsoever until they find their rest in you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and for its power. We recognize you are the only true God and Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.